0: We will get going. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us and allowing us to be here. We ask that you would help us at this time to understand your word and to see how these passages relate to the kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we're, we're doing the prophets in chronological order. We're not doing them in what they call canonical order. It's the order they appear in your Bible. And so we're on Hosea. We're on Hosea. So let's turn to the book of Hosea and turn to chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, I just want to demonstrate for you why Hosea is next. Okay. So Hosea 1... Verse 1, you, you look at Hosea, and as you're looking at Hosea, I'm going to read Isaiah 1 1. Okay? You're looking at Hosea 1 1. I'm going to read Isaiah 1 1. Okay? The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So you see the similarity? Everybody see that? So it's the same kings, it's the same set of kings. And uh, so um, Hosea and Isaiah are contemporaries. Now, our, the passage here related to the kingdom is actually in Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. And uh, it goes all the way through the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is only five verses long, so it's not that much, uh, not that much more than um, just one chapter. But uh, you remember what's happening in this book of the Bible with Hosea, okay? You have Hosea and his wife, what's her name? Gomer, Gomer. So Hosea and Gomer. And Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea. And the Lord is using this situation in the life of the prophet as an illustration of how Israel has treated God. So as Gomer is unfaithful to her husband Hosea, so Israel has been unfaithful to the Lord their God. So in chapter 2 Verses 1 through 13, we have God's case against Hosea. We have his indictment, or excuse me, indictment against Israel, not Hosea. His case against Israel, his indictment against Israel. And this indictment is summed up in verse 13. So look at chapter 2, verse 13. He says, I will punish her. For the days of the Baals, to which she burned incense, she decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord. So this, is, this sums up this indictment. And the Lord has brought this indictment against Israel because of the time that she had spent worshiping false gods such as Baal. And so God uses this imagery of marital unfaithfulness to illustrate the idolatry of Israel. By the way, when, you, when you're reading in your Bible and you see adultery, you almost always see idolatry in the same place. Because the Lord relates those two things together, because they're both unfaithfulness to God. In fact, there are uh, some places in the Bible where you'll get a list of sins, and you'll get the this list of, <coughs> excuse me, um, sexual sins. And in the middle of that list of sexual sins, guess what it says? Idolatry. It mentions idolatry, and uh, so so. Adultery and idolatry are closely related in the eyes of the Lord. And so God's going to punish, God's going to punish Israel. See, verse 13, I will punish her. He's going to punish her because Israel has turned away from the Lord, has turned their backs on the Lord and gone after other gods. They are in rebellion. They are in the middle of Unfaithfulness. And if you look at the description in verse 13, the second half of the verse, it's, it's clear to us that they, that Israel wasn't seduced. Okay, She wasn't tricked. It says she decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. I was talking about the false gods. So this is something Israel wanted to do. She wanted to do it. And so God issues his case against Israel. And then as we move down to verses 14 to the end of this entire section, which is chapter 3, verse 5, it talks of the Lord's restoration of Israel, the Lord's restoration of Israel now notice verse 14 I find verse 14 very intriguing very interesting it says therefore behold I will allure her does, does anybody have something else in their Bible there instead of allure persuade okay it's probably not as strong probably not as strong as allure, but it's, it's on the right track. So the word here, allure, is the picture of God winning back the affection of an unfaithful spouse. So God's going to win Israel's heart back. You see that? Therefore... Behold, I will allure her. He's going to pursue her to win her back, even though she has been unfaithful. Now, how's the Lord going to do this? How is the Lord going to win the affections and win the heart of Israel back to himself? It tells us in the rest of verse 14, then down into 15. Verse 14, it said, I will allure her, I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak comfort to her. So the Lord is going to bring her, bring Israel into the wilderness. And uh, he's going to take her out of the place of temptation, if we can put it that way. And he's going to isolate her. He's going to put her in a place where she's removed from all these influences, the influences of the false gods. And then it says the Lord is going to speak comfort to her. He's going to literally, it's, he's going to speak to her heart. That's what it says, speak to her heart. So these are gentle words, comforting words. And so the Lord is not going to get Israel back by force. He's not treating her abusively or violently. He's not going to coerce her. He's going to woo her. He's going to woo her. He's going to take care of her. And so I think it's very interesting that we see this in verse 14, because this is, this is describing for us, essentially, this is how God acts with all mankind. He's acting here with Israel, but this is how God acts. He doesn't coerce. He woos. Now, in verse 15, we see that the Lord is going to bring Israel back into the land and bless her. It says, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord. What day? Well, the day, excuse me, I read verse 16. Verse 15, I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Acor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So immediately we see that in verse 15, God is going to use the illustration of what he did with the exodus. He's going to use that illustration here. And there's a couple things that point to that, but uh, just keep that in mind. This is, he, he's, he's telling them, remember how I got you out of Egypt. Okay, it's going to be the same thing. But he begins by saying, I will give her vineyards from there. That phrase From there, at the end of verse, the first line of verse 15 indicates that the Lord is going to bring her back out of the wilderness. In verse 14, he's taken her to the wilderness. In verse 15, he's going to bring her back out of the wilderness and give her vineyards. He's going to provide for her. He's going to bless her. And then we see that it says, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. He is going to give Israel the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Now, do any of you remember the valley of Achor? Yeah, me either. Had not looked that up. Right, but it's very significant in the, in the uh, Pentateuch. The valley of Achor is where Achan committed his sin. Okay, And Achor literally means trouble. So this is the valley of trouble. So when the children of Israel came out of Egypt... And Achan sinned, the, where he sinned, they named the Valley of Trouble, the Valley of Achor. But God is going to do something different when he restores Israel. Uh, the Valley of Acor is not going to be a Valley of Trouble anymore. What's it say? He's going to give her the Valley of Acor as a door of hope. He's going to change it from trouble to hope. So when Israel returns to the land, instead of there being trouble, this is a time of hope. And you can see uh, the joy that is expressed here. It says, she shall sing there. Okay, sing's going to be an expression of rejoicing. As in the days of her youth. Just like when he came out of Egypt. So there's rejoicing and joy there. So uh, the Lord is bringing Israel back into the land, and he is going to bless her. And in verses 16 through 20, we see that Israel has a renewed relationship with the Lord. Israel's renewed relationship with the Lord. Verse 16. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. So it begins by saying, in that day. In that day. In what day? In the day that he is going to bless her. In that day, at that time. What's going to happen? Israel is going to call God my husband, and not call him my master. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? In fact, what's happening here is a little bit of a play on words. My husband is Ishi. That's the Hebrew word, Ishi. My master is uh, Bali. Bali, you know, like the place Bali. It's the Hebrew word. That's the Hebrew vacation spot. That's where all the Jews go, Bali. So they're not, they're going to say Ishi and not Bali. Now, you hear that word Bali, and as you look at verse 17, what word in verse 17 do you think connects to Bali? Baals, right? Baals. The word Baal is essentially the word master. So God is saying, you're not gonna call me master anymore, as in a servant-slave-master relationship. You're gonna call me my husband, my man. Indicates that this relationship between Israel and God has been renewed. So verse 17 says and I will take from her mouth the names of the baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. So the Lord here is prohibiting the mention of the names of Israel's former lovers. The false gods that she went after. So they're not we're not even going to mention that anymore. So it's it's not as if God is saying, well, we're going to renew our relationship, but as soon as you start to get out of line again, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to remind you about all this bad stuff you did. God says, not going to do that. Not even going to mention this anymore. And as we come to verse 18, we see here that God provides peace for Israel. This renewed relationship that Israel has with God involves peace for Israel. It says, "In that day I will make a covenant for them." Notice who the covenant's between. It's going to be between Israel with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the air and with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle i will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely so god is going to cause a covenant to be made between the jews and animals they're not going to have problems with animals anymore and they're not anymore now think about that god's going to cause israel to have peace with all men Does that fit today? No, it it doesn't. This This is one of the reasons I find it so amazing when people say, we're in the kingdom today. And this is talking about the millennial kingdom. And they say, oh, we're in the kingdom today. And you read a passage like that and you say, well, how does that fit? When it seems to me almost the exact opposite of the bottom of verse 18 is happening in the world today. That instead of Israel having peace with their neighbors and the rest of man, everybody wants to eliminate Israel. They want to fight Israel and destroy Israel. In the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, that's not gonna be the case. There is going to be peace. Then in verses 19 through 20, we see that there's this It's really almost like the renewal of wedding vows. Verse 19, it says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So this betrothal language here, it isn't just referring to the marriage, but it's also referring to what we would call the engagement period and even the wedding. It's the whole shebang that uh, he's talking about here. And so this, these verses from 16 to 20 are talking about Israel's renewed relationship with the Lord. Now, in verses 21 through 23, we see that Israel will receive the blessings of the land because of this renewed relationship. Relationships renewed, then they receive the blessings of the land. Verse uh, 21, and it shall come to pass in that day. I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. Verse 22, the earth shall answer. Answer with what? New grain or or with grain, with new wine and with oil. So the, the expression that we're getting here is that the Lord is going to speak and he's going to speak to the heavens. And then the heavens are going to speak. They will answer. And what do you think the heavens answer? What's the picture you're supposed to get in your mind here when the heavens answer the earth? Rain. rain. That's right. It's Talking about rain. Then the earth answers. And we're told how the earth answers. The earth answers with grain, with new wine, so the vineyards are producing their fruit, and with oil. And so this is talking about blessings that the Jews will receive from the land. But this is not the only, only thing that happens here. Notice at the end of verse 22. They shall answer Jezreel. Now what's the word Jezreel mean? Somebody's got to have a note in their Bible there. God sows. God sows. So uh, God is the one who sows. He's the one who's going to produce this. Verse 23. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. So Israel's going to say, God's the one who's done this. God's the one who sows. Then God says, or God's going to sow her for himself in the earth. And then it goes on and says, I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Now, do you recognize anything there in verse 23? Does anything stand out? And at the end of verse 22, the last line of verse 22, down through verse 23, there's a play on the names of each of Hosea and Gomer's children. There's a play on their names. Look, turn back to chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, well, let's look at verse 3. Let's start in verse 3, then you have the context. Chapter 1, verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of uh, Deblem, and she conceived and bore him a son. So first child's going to be a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name what? Jezreel. Chapter 2, verse 22. Last line. For in a little while I'll revenge the bloodshed of Jezreel in the house of Jehu, and bring it into the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel and the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6. And she conceived, Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, call her name, Lo-ru-hama. Lo-ru-hama, what's that name mean? No mercy, no mercy. So that goes with verse 23, chapter two, verse 23, no mercy. He goes on and says in 1 6 for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow nor by sword or battle by horse or horseman. Verse 8. Now when she had weaned lo, Ruhama, she conceived and bore a son. And God said, call his name Loami, what does Loami mean? Not my people. For you are not my people and I will not be your God. So these three names come up over and over again here and they're significant. Because when you drop back to chapter 2 verse 23, you see these three names appear. Then Jezreel for myself in the earth. So chapter 2, verse 23. For then Jezreel her, myself, in the earth. So this is I will sow. That's Jezreel. I will sow. Jezreel. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy or no mercy. Okay, no mercy. That's the name of the daughter, lo Ruhama. Then I will say to those who were not my people, those who were Loami, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. So here's a radical thing that's happened here. So Israel has turned their back on God, has rebelled, and has gone after false gods. And the illustration is just like an adulterous spouse goes after uh, other people. And God says, the first thing he says is Jezreel, Jezreel. And uh, that dealt with punishment when it was first given. And then he says, Lo Ruhama. Lo Ruhama. No mercy. I'm not going to have any mercy on you. And he, then he follows that with Lo Ami. You're not my people. And now he says, Because of your wickedness, I'm going to punish you. Verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. That's his indictment against them. I'm going to punish you. But then he's going to restore their relationship with him and he's not going to do it by force he's going to do it by wooing her by winning israel's heart back to himself so you see that in that chapter it fits the pattern of how god operates with the children of israel they sin And God says, repent. If you don't repent, there's going to be judgment. When they don't repent, there's punishment that comes. And then there's restoration after the punishment. So it fits into that pattern. Now, we're not done here, though, with Hosea. We still have chapter 3. So in verses 1 through 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we have God's instructions to Hosea and it's obvious from verse one. Then the Lord said to me, so Hosea is reporting this, the Lord told me something. Here's what the Lord told Hosea. Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods And love the raising cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver. And one and one half homer of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be toward you. So, um, God's instructions to Hosea is, go get your wife. Go get your wife. Even though she is actively committing adultery. And it, and it seems like she's not just committing adultery here because in verse 2, Hosea has to pay for her. So... I'm not sure exactly how to take that, if, if she has sold herself to be some type of sex slave or something like that, or if she's just a plain old prostitute. Either way, he's got to pay money for her, even though she's his wife. And so he goes and he buys her and says, we're together. We're together. No more of this. Okay, and this is all an illustration. It's it's God's visual aid to Israel to warn them about their adultery, about the punishment that will come, but also to give them encouragement that they will be restored. He's not going to wipe them out. Now, in verses 4 through 5, we have God's word concerning Israel. God's word concerning Israel, verse four. For the children of Israel shall abide many days. Do, do you see that? It's, he's repeated a phrase there. Okay, look at look at with me. Look at verse three with me. And I said to her, Hosea said to Gomer, "You shall stay with me what many days." Verse four. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Now, what do you think that means? What's God saying is going to happen to Israel? He's saying you're going to be punished. And how are you going to be punished? What's it say there? What aren't they going to have? They're not going to have a king. They're not going to have a ruler. Then it says they're not going to have sacrifice or sacred pillar. Now, what do you think that's talking about? The temple. That's right. So part of the punishment is going to be shutting down the temple. Whether that's the destruction of the temple or not, it doesn't say here. But the temple is going to be shut down. Then it says, without ephod or teraphim. Who wore the ephod? The priests. So not only is there not going to be a king. And if there's not a king, there's not a nation there's not going to be temple worship so they can't even worship god and on top of that there's not even going to be a pre- even if there was a temple there's not going to be a priesthood there's not going to be any active people facilitating the worship of god so uh, you know this is punishment this is all part of the punishment there's going to be the absence of these things. But then look for at verse 5. What comes next? Afterward. After what? Those things that he just mentioned in verse 4, right? The long span of time that the children of Israel are without a prince or a king, without a sacrifice or sacred pillar without an ephod or a teraphim. Many days. Now, when you think of the span of history and the existence of the children of Israel who have been in existence for how long? 3,500, 4,000 years, something like that. Um... Is 70 years a long time? No. So, the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, or even if you want to say 100 years, it's actually, it's, I guess it's more like 85 years altogether when you consider the captivity, the destruction of the temple, and the rebuilding of the temple. It's not not a long span of time. So it really doesn't match up with many days. What does match up with many days? Many days without a king, without the temple, and without the priesthood. What matches up with that? The church age. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. That's what matches up with that. So I would take it. That verse 4 is right now. Verse 4, this is is part of what is going on right now. Now, verse 5, so afterwards, so after that is over, after this punishment is over, the children of Israel shall return and shall seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So that tells us when that happens, the latter days. Okay, and uh, when you see that latter days, that's talking about end times, end times. So notice in verse 5, it says, after all that's over, the children of Israel are going to return and seek. They're going to return and seek. That uh, The word return there is just kind of a generic term that means turn. You know, it can mean turn to the left, turn to the right. It can mean turn around. Uh, it, so it can be a physical thing. But it it can also mean returning back to the place you came from. So... Um, you know this word means. Here's my here's my visual illustration. This word here, shuv, is the word means. That's what it means. I just did. I just did the word, but it also means what you're going to do when you leave here. You're going to return where you came from. You're going to go back home. So you, you're you're going to go back to where you were before. It, it can also refer to a turning back, a turning back to a way of thinking, a way of viewing things, a way of acting that you had before. So the turning here is to return back to how things were supposed to be. So the children of Israel are going to return, and they will seek, they will seek. They're gonna look for, this is the word to search out, Um, you know, investigate. They're gonna look for, and they're gonna look for two people. Who are those two people? The Lord their God and David their King. Okay, the the Lord their God. Um, Keep in mind, uh, Israel is illustrated in this book by Gomer. And what we've seen before, Gomer was out seeking everybody but Hosea. She wanted everybody but her husband. That's Israel. Israel was going after all the other gods other than her own God. But God is going to win her heart back, and she's going to come back and she's going to seek after what we saw in verse 16 of chapter one, my husband. My husband's going to call him my husband, not my master. So she is seeking the Lord, their God, and David, their king. Now this is talking about the time after the punishment, at the beginning of the time of their blessing or their restoration. Now when we think of the end times... The end times. What is the event that culminates in God's discipline on Israel? What do we call that? Tribulation. That's right. Okay? What comes after the tribulation? Be precise. What comes after the tribulation? What comes after the tribulation? Second coming. Then the millennium. Okay. So the second coming and then the millennium. But, and that's what verse 5 is talking about. Okay. It's talking about this time after the tribulation, we have the second coming and the beginning of the millennium. But it doesn't say that they're going to seek their Messiah. It says they're going to seek the Lord, their God, and who? Who? David, their king. Now, some people think that phrase, David, their king, is talking about the Davidic dynasty. Um, other people think it's talking about the Messiah, uh, Christ. I think it's pretty straightforward and that it's actually talking about David, King David. I have a reason for that, though. Uh, First, my first reason for that is uh, that as far as I can tell, every time the word king and David occur in close connection, it's talking about David, the son of Jesse, the second king of Israel. It's never talking about the Messiah, or another king in the Davidic line. It's always talking about uh, David himself. Hold your finger here and let's turn back to Jeremiah chapter 30. Now, when we get to the book of Jeremiah and I start talking about Jeremiah chapter 30, you can tell me we already talked about that. I might not remember. Jeremiah chapter 30. So, Jeremiah chapter 30 is a parallel passage to Hosea 2 and 3. They go right together. Okay, Um, Let's just start... uh, right at the beginning. Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying, write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will what? bring back from captivity my people israel and judah says the lord and i will cause them to do what return to the land that i gave to their fathers and they shall possess it now these are the words that the lord spoke concerning israel and judah for thus says the lord We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. So why do you see every man with his hands on his loins, like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of, what's it say? Jacob's trouble. That's talking about the last three and a half years of the tribulation. The time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. Talking about Israel. Verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them. Now notice this verse here, verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. It's almost an exact parallel. The differences being in Hosea it says that they will return and seek, whereas in Jeremiah it says they shall serve. Why is that the difference? Well, the difference is because of the context of the books. And Hosea is going to use return and seek because that's what Gomer did before. She turned away from Hosea and she sought other gods. Israel turned away from the Lord and sought other gods. Gomer sought other lovers. So that's why Hosea says that and Jeremiah says serve. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Now here's the second difference. In Jeremiah 39, 30, chapter 30, verse 9, it says, whom I will raise up for them he's going to be raised up for them what do you think that is talking about resurrection resurrection so king david is going to be raised up he's going to be resurrected and some might say, no, that's not, that's not going to be the case. This is a resurrection of one who is like David. And Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Say, no, this is, this is one who's like David. This is the, and Jeremiah 30, verse 9, this is one like David that's going to be raised up. This David, their king is not actually David himself. It's one like, now who's the one like David? It would be the Messiah, right? Now think about it. Put your thinking caps on here. Why can't this be talking about the Messiah? He's already raised. So when we get to this time in the history of the world, where the children of Israel are going to serve their God, where they are going to return and seek the Lord their God. This is going to be at least 2,000 years after the Messiah has been raised. When was the Messiah resurrected? AD 33. That's when he was resurrected. If this was talking about the Messiah, he's not going to say, I will raise him up. What would he say? He would say, "I'm going to send him back." right? I'm going to send him back." But that's not what it says. It says, "I will raise him up." And the fact that it said, David their king, everybody in Jeremiah's day, everybody in Hosea's day would have known what about David? What was his, what was his status on the earth in Jeremiah's day and Hosea's day? D? E-A-D. He was dead, right? So, it makes sense that this is King David. Furthermore, uh, we're told in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, that there's this resurrection of the Old Testament saints that happens after the tribulation. That fits right in with what we're reading here in Hosea 3, verse 5. So let's turn back there. Hosea 3 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. David is going to be resurrected after the tribulation. Daniel 12:2. After the tribulation as the lord is setting up his kingdom for a thousand years and this results in the result of this is the very last sentence in verse five they shall fear the lord and his goodness in the latter days they shall have uh uh, this this is this is Kind of like both sides of the coin. This fear and goodness. This goodness. That the word fear here is the word trembling. So they're going to have uh, this respect for the Lord and his goodness. So one of the things that we should notice in this passage is that the God is not some kind of passive bystander. God has made a plan, but that fulfillment, but the fulfillment of that plan still involves Israel's response. We see that God does not say to Israel, look, I've made this plan and you're going to follow it whether you like it or not. Instead, God deals graciously, mercifully, with incredible kindness and love even with people who don't deserve it. Even after Israel's idolatrous adultery, God is going to work to win her heart back. And he will do this. And when he does it, Israel will respond in faithfulness, renewing her relationship with the Lord, and then we have the kingdom, the kingdom. So any questions there about Hosea? That's usually not how that passage is explained or preached. Uh, I've heard people preach on the book of Hosea several times And um, they almost never mention anything about this, the context of God's chastening of Israel. Uh, And then certainly they don't mention the future blessing of Israel. The only thing they mention is that God deals with Israel graciously, which is true. Hosea does show us that, but it also shows us what he does and what he's gonna provide for them as he treats them with grace and mercy. Well, let's turn to the book of Micah here. This is a short one. Again, we're uh, just going in chronological order, roughly. And and, uh, two verses here, both in chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and Micah chapter 5, verse 4. They go together. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that one's probably familiar to us. Verse 4 might not be as familiar. Uh, Look at verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren, shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. So the first thing we notice here in verse 2 is that the ruler comes from where? Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem. So we know this fits right in with the Gospels and that when Jesus was born, he fulfilled this prophecy. I should say the prophecy was fulfilled when he was born. Okay, so the ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem. But notice the description of the ruler in the last part of verse 2. How is this ruler described? Yeah, who's going forth is from old, from everlasting. Well, that certainly does not sound like any human being, does it? But they're going to come from Bethlehem. Then look at uh, verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock. So this is all talking about the ruler. This is what the ruler is going to do. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. For now he shall be great. How far? To the ends of the earth. So that takes us beyond Israel, doesn't it? So, and that matches with the fact that when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth, he's not just going to be the ruler of Israel, he's going to be the ruler of all the earth. And uh, so we see here that this ruler, who I would just call, this is the millennial ruler from here, this millennial ruler, The ruler who is going to rule over the restored kingdom of Israel is going to be from Bethlehem. And there's going to be a time in verse 3. There's going to be a time when he's not going to be followed. Okay, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of the brethren shall return to the children. So there's this going to be time where he's not going to be followed. But he's going to stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. And his authority, his rule, is going to go beyond Israel and it encompasses the whole earth. And there's going to be peace. So it's telling us a lot about the kingdom. Here, so I think most people would agree with that. It's just uh, when they when they try to make it sense of it, and whatever their view of the end times is, if it's not premillennialism, it doesn't make sense. Okay, It, it it makes sense if this is if this is Jesus, that makes sense, right? But this can't be just speaking about Jesus at his first coming because he's not ruler at his first coming. He's, not, he's never accepted as king at his first coming. So it has to go beyond that where he'll rule uh, to the ends of the earth and there will be peace. So one of the things that is really important that we understand when we're reading prophecy And we're trying to find out, is this fulfilled prophecy or is it yet to be fulfilled prophecy? Fulfilled prophecy matches history exactly. And so when it says something like there's peace, there has to be peace for the prophecy to be fulfilled. Okay, it has to be that way. All right? So that's, excuse me, Hosea and Micah. Any questions about Micah? I, I did, uh, there's one thing I didn't mention about Hosea that I wanted to mention, and, and that is that uh, when it says they will seek and return to the Lord their God, I think that is talking about the Messiah. So the Lord their God is the Messiah, and David their king is David. The king, their king, who will rule over them, who will rule over the Jews in uh, the millennium. So, all right. Well, let me have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed and we'll uh, remember the bachelors. They're getting ready to take a little trip here, so we'll pray for their safety. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thanks for this time that we've had together and able to study your word and uh, see not just a broad view of things, but actually see quite a bit of detail about what you have revealed about what you're going to do with the children of Israel. So, Lord, help us to uh, learn from this and apply it. And we apply it and ways that give us great concern about the nation of Israel now and about the world around us now. But these uh, concerns are overshadowed by the fact that you promise great blessing at the end of trouble. And so help us to always keep that in mind as uh, we are in the world today and help us to be faithful